Hey listeners, Jazz here. I'm jumping in at the beginning, before the episode really starts, because I want to give you a heads up. In like 30 seconds, you're going to hear me say, this episode comes out on Thanksgiving. And if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, you may notice that it is not in fact Thanksgiving. If you're listening to it a week late, it is Thanksgiving, and thank you for joining us. I do that with podcasts all the time, it's fine. In my defense, unlike the Jewish calendar, which sticks to a very reliable, planned schedule, Thanksgiving is kind of a fake holiday invented by Christians that moves around, and anyway, just wanted to let you know that you're not in some cool temporal loop or time skip or whatever, we just apparently didn't have calendaring down yet, which is a problem I am attempting to fix with spreadsheets. So, shouldn't happen again, and enjoy the episode, fellow kosher queers. Hey, uh, Lulav, guess yes. what is exciting about today when our episode comes out? Oh, is, no, it's not the spooky day. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's my guess. What, okay, what's the up? obvious answer, I think, would have been Thanksgiving. It comes out on Thanksgiving. But, oh, right. Um, <laughs> Uh, the actual answer is that I'm just very excited because this is my Torah portion. Oh, God, yeah. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. This is the one that I, like, recited in front of a whole group of people when I was 13 years old, which leads me actually to my favorite, like, queer and Jewish thing that happened this week, Mm -hmm. which is that a teen came up to me and was like, Hey, so if someone has a thing, and at the time they call it a bat mitzvah, and then they transition, can mm-hmm. can they call it a bar mitzvah then if they want to? And I was like, yes, uh, you or uh, hypothetically anybody, yes, totally could. Good. I'm so glad. It was very exciting. What phrase do you use for your joining of the covenant? It's a very good question because I, at the time, called it a bat mitzvah, and I still mostly do. But sometimes when I'm talking to kids or talking to certain, <laughs> like, cis strangers or whatever, I do call it b'nai mitzvah. Yeah. Because I think that's a perfectly fine gender-neutral term, and I don't always see that it is in my best interest to refer to myself in a way that other people might read as gendered, because I feel like it might give them permission to do that too. And I feel fine about calling it a bat mitzvah, because that's what I called it at the time, and that's just like a historical fact about my life. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like I don't need to give people any more license to refer to me as a woman than necessary sometimes. Yeah, very fair. Did you have a ceremony? And if so, what do you call it? I did not. Well, okay. So when I was 13, I was confirmed in the Unitarian Church. (laughs) Sure. You have to read a statement of faith. And I was like, I'm an atheist. Here's why. And everybody was like, okay, that's cool. So I love Unitarians. I definitely am not one anymore, but they're champs for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of in a weird place where like I had enough culturally Jewish stuff growing up that I feel comfortable calling myself Jewish. Mm -hmm. But also I have had like less instruction in Torah directly than people who are B'nai Mitzvah. Mm. (laughs) And I also... I've been doing this since like 2015, where it's like, oh, yeah, I would really like to get in on the adult bat mitzvah classes. Mm -hmm. And then being like, hey, rabbi, what should I do to get in on these classes? And being told like, well, we're starting in like three months. So get back to me then. And then six months later, 
I'm like, hey, whatever happened with those? Oh, dang it. Oh, no. Oh, the cohort already started, huh? And I've been just doing that for like four years. No. So that's my whole situation. So someday. Next year in Jerusalem. (laughs) Except for probably not in Jerusalem specifically. Right. You probably do it in Minneapolis. Yes. Next year in the promised Twin City. (laughs) Which is which is which one? Minneapolis. Okay, all right. The other one is St. Paul, and for anybody who's ever talked to me about Christian theology, I loathe Paul of Tarsus. Okay, fascinating. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, uh, yeah. I just don't like his theology. Okay. I have no real opinions on that. Um, why don't you like it? <laughs> so he, hmm, you know how when we're discussing Torah, We talk about, like, all these different stories that you can be telling and how they all reflect a certain amount of truth. Mm -hmm. The way that he's coming at things is like, no, this is true and you have to literally believe it so that your soul will be saved. Oh, that's annoying. Yeah. Like, I don't know if he was the first Christian theologian to do this, but, like... As a major early church father, he definitely popularized the idea of salvation through faith alone. And I can see the necessity of distancing yourself from the ethnic limitations of the covenant, but to distance yourself from working for a good future and the the goodness of things being based on how you do them rather than like believing that a political figure died for you. I don't know. Sure. Also, sorry about the clacking radiator behind me. Well, we'll live with that. Um, hopefully our listeners will live with that too. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> now that we've covered the Christian theology segment of our Jewish podcast. Um, Are we ready to go into this week's Torah portion? Yes. And that was the thing I say as I click through to where we have the intro written down because I can't do it off the top of my head, is that Paul of Tarsus was a Jew. He's coming from a Jewish perspective, but like completely warping it. Where is the intro and outro? It's used during episode recordings. Here we go. (laughs) But completely warping it. So that it is unrecognizable as Jewish. One, two, three, four. Welcome to Kosher Queers, a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week, we bring you queer takes on Torah, they're jazz. And she's Lulav. And today, we're going to talk about Chaye Sarah. It's mine. Anyway, yes, we are. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm going to stop saying that all of the time. Um. You're so valid. And also, like, I've heard that probably a dozen times. But for the listeners, they've heard it maybe once. Yeah. Okay. I think three times by this point. So, you know... We're building a mythology. It's good. <laughs> so are you gonna are you gonna time me? I wrote mine this time so you actually get a a 
prepared an advanced summary. Okay, so am I using the timer or the stopwatch? Um, I don't know if I quite can, but let's see if I can do it in 45 seconds. 45. Okay, I'm using the timer. You will hear the annoying sound that I love so much. Great. Three, two, one, go. This Torah portion is called The Life of Sarah, and naturally the first thing in this Parsha is that Sarah immediately dies, and then Abraham has to figure out how to bury her, and he has a slapstick back and forth of excessive politeness with the local Hittites trying to one-up each other in hospitality before finally just buying a grave. Then Abraham is like, well, before I die too, I have one last thing on my bucket bucket list, and that is messing around in my kid's romantic life, (laughs) so sends his former heir to go get a wife for his current heir without bothering to bring said current heir along. So the dude goes on a quest and decides to pick a kind girl, and when he meets Rebecca, who's to animals, he concludes that's sufficient information, gives her jewelry, and only after that discovers she is the first cousin of her intended husband. Nothing daunted, he speaks to her dad, who says, it's up to God, I guess, but then the family stalls until Rebecca says, no, I want to go, and then Isaac falls in love at first sight, and then Abraham remarries, and then dies, and his sons bury him together, and it's sweet. It is sweet, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so glad. Uh, We'll talk about that when I get there. I did You did really good, especially the part about Rebecca, who's nice to animals. I can see how she is just a fairy tale princess right there. Yeah. Um, That's like a whole long bit. Anyway. Good. That was a great short summary. I'm proud of you. I think that's the first time that somebody has done it within time. (laughs) Oh, wait, no. I did get it the first time. Current record holder for 19 seconds. (laughs) Because it was a half to rob. Yeah, yeah. Are we ready for our longer summary? Yes, please. Okay. So it really does begin with Sarah dying. Like it's, it starts with Sarah lived for 127 years. Such was the span of Sarah's life. And I looked it up in a couple translations and that's what it says. But the thing I had in my head was a version that just said, Sarah lived for 127 years and then she died. Which version was that? That's not a version that I found anywhere when I went looking for it, but that is like the verse that I have in my head as my memory of it. Okay. It's not wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any questions about the very, very beginning? Not the very, very beginning about her dying. I mean, living. Right. Living. (laughs) So then there is this whole back and forth, right, about Abraham trying to find a grave. And he says, like, I am a foreigner living for a time among you. Please, won't you sell me a grave? I'll buy it. I I just beg your indulgences, basically. And they're like, oh, no, you, sir, are are mighty and a prince. And, like, it would be our honor and none of us would stoop to refusing to give you a grave. (laughs) And then he bows to them. Like, they have this back and forth about, about it. And then... He asks for a specific one and someone offers to give him a grave for free and then he insists on paying for it. Yeah. So two things. One, what is it about Avraham that Hittites are so flattering and eager to help him despite his being, quote, a stranger and an alien residing among you, end quote? Well, I have two things about this. One of them being like practical and one just like more ideological and a little bit fan fictiony, which is to say we did have all that stuff in earlier texts about him winning a military victory like maybe they are just mm-hmm. scared of him <laughs> he like is wealthy and has fought wars and maybe they're just like a little bit worried about it mm-hmm. and they're like i don't know an old dude who spent all of his life with his wife and we don't know what he's going to be like without her so 
Avraham cleaning his handgun as he asks the Hittites if they have a burial plot for him. <laughs> right. My, like, more sweet version of this story is just yeah. like the text has gone out of its way a bunch of times to emphasize like hospitality like abraham offering stuff to the strangers and maybe this is just more of a like hey he is a stranger in a strange land this is how you should treat strangers in strange lands hint hint at your immigration policies <laughs> and also this is how you should act as a stranger in a strange land mm, right like instead of just tromping in and taking burial plots willy-nilly right. and driving people out you should you know make friends offer right. them 400 shekels Right. Insist on paying for things even if they are willing to offer them to you. This one is more of a, like, dig it colonialism, maybe. Yeah. So I want to point out that 400 shekels is about 10 pounds of silver. Okay. And in D&D, a coin is 1 50th of a pound. So 10 pounds of silver is 500 silver coins. Or, basically, Avraham paid 50 GP for his wife's burial plot. <laughs> Okay, great. So the second question I had is, why does Avraham insist on compensation? I don't know the answer to this, but it did make me think about the back and forths we've had also about mm. how we were going to interact with people when we were making stuff for the podcast. Like, we pay yeah. our, the person who did our art, even though, like, they're a friend of mine and, like, didn't necessarily initially ask for that so much, you know, but that maybe there is this sense of like, well, we all have to exist and we all have to struggle. And like, this is the polite way to interact with someone. But also like, I, I am not trying to exploit these people. Like, I, I really do want to like behave in what I think is the best and most ethical way. And like, obviously, this is not per se a capitalist system, like in the way that I think of like, under capitalism, you want to compensate people, you know, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there is some sort of amount of like, I don't want to be like just taking things from people like I want this to feel beneficial to both of us yeah an interpretation that I had mm. informed by you know centuries of diaspora is that he was saying no I want to make sure to pay you so that if there is ever a question about whether this is my wife's burial plot or not mm. we have record of I paid you 10 pounds of silver yeah that's also a really good one so I really like both of those. I do too. Okay, so then he pays them and it says Ephron's land in Machpelah, looking out of Mamre, the field, its cave, and all the trees in the field within its boundaries passed Abraham by purchase in sight of the Hittites and all of the town leaders. Like it's very specific, which seems sort of to validate the thing you were saying about like, oh, yeah. they wanted a very specific record of like, this is the part we got. And it was all above board and everything like that. Yeah. So that's cool. And so, but then the next bit is Abraham is old <laughs> and he wants his son to have a wife. And they have this weird bit. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, okay. So two things before we get fully. <laughs> the first bit is I had remembered before I read this that the person who like went out to get Rebecca had a name, mm. which was Eliezer, who is mentioned by name in like one of the previous um I was about to say episodes, one of the previous Parshot. Um, <laughs> but they are never mentioned by name here. They're only referred to as the slave, which is gross. Uh -huh. um, but when I said, like, 
the former heir. This one says, like, this is the most senior person of his household. That was my understanding, too. And we did hear in the other Parsha that before Abraham had, like, biological children, he was going to give it to, like, the person who was head of his household. Yeah. Anyway, but the thing he says to, who I'm just going to call Eliezer, even though we don't get his name in this Parsha. You're welcome to. Yeah, which is really rude that we don't get his name. He should be treated as a full person. But anyway, that's what I'm going to do. He says, put your hand under my thigh that I may have you swear by God, basically, in heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife from among the daughters of the Canaanites in whose midst I dwell, but that you'll go to the place where I was born and get away from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so he's like good enough to... Anyway, do you have questions about this bit? What's your read on this situation? <laughs> to my first instinct, Abraham seems like a racist grandpa. So uh, Yes, I definitely see that interpretation and it <laughs> feels like a very valid reading of the text. I also... I don't know, like, it reminded me a little bit of the idea of, like, he's an immigrant, and maybe sometimes people in, like, their immigrant communities are like, I don't fully want to assimilate, and I'd like for my kid to marry somebody from my birth community, and, like, people can have all sorts of feelings about that, for sure, (laughs) but that in and of itself, if there isn't certain power dynamics there, that isn't necessarily racist, depending on who has power in the situation. Yeah, and that was Tova's first interpretation of this, when I was talking to them earlier and reading through the Parsha. And I really like that. That makes sense. I just was thinking of this from the point of view of, like, white people. Sure. As opposed to the point of view of, like, Jews specifically. Yeah. Well, uh, but I don't think it has to be a Jewish exclusive experience. No, yeah. And, and in fact, it's not a Jewish specific experience because the people that Abraham comes from in this situation aren't Jewish, right? <laughs> like, Abraham is the first Jewish person Mm, true. They're just like from the same area and same culture and type of deal. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also like how he says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Like, I want this to be as we made the promise with the Lord that like going forward, we are these people in this land. Mm -hmm. But I do want him to have a connection to where I came from. Mm, Yeah. Also, when it says, put your hand under my thigh. That's where I thought you were going to go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So he's basically just like, hey, Eliezer, come over here. Put your hand on my balls. No, do it. Do it. Okay. (laughs) Promise me (laughs) that you will get a wife for Isaac from the homeland. Yeah. Yeah. I do think so. (laughs) And they're just being a little euphemistic. Well, there's a little bit of interpretation and commentary Mm -hmm. in my Torah commentary that I'm reading, Mm -hmm. Um, which actually I should say, because I've been referring to it as like the reform translation for the last few episodes, I have this translation because I got it for my bat mitzvah. So like when I opened to the Chaye Sarah, I like found my old like sticky notes of like start here and stop here. (laughs) Which was very sweet. Anyway, so but that's why I have this particular translation that I that I use for this recording. Mm -hmm. What do they say about the significance of this? Well, it's a little bit unclear from context where he's supposed to be touching. um, (laughs) But that there is this implication of like, you're promising it. And if you break your promise, like you'll be sterile. Mm. And that you won't be able to have kids. And that's why like, it's (laughs) like, Uh, yeah, located there. (laughs) Why are men like this? 
That's a really good question. <laughs> but yeah, the note in my NRSV copy is as euphemistic as the text itself. Oh my it God. says, putting the hand under the thigh, an old form of oath taking, reflected the view that reproductive organs were sacred. Yeah, that's not what this one says. This one is like <laughs> much clearer that says the symbolic gesture may have implied a curse of sterility on the offender. Sons are said to issue from the thigh. Some suggest that this act involved touching the testicles. <laughs> like, <laughs> So like they're just very straightforward about it. Yeah, um, good. Yeah. I'm so proud of our people. <laughs> We are, in general, better about that. Do you want to move on? Anyway, so and then Eliezer says, okay, and he goes to the land where Abraham came from, and he brought 10 camels with him, a minion of camels. Oh, good point. I don't know if that's intentional, but he brought 10 of them, and I think it's implied that he brings 10 because he's carrying so much stuff with him because he says that laden with an abundant store of his master's goods and then he goes to a drinking well and he prays and he says the way i will know if the person um is gonna be isaac's wife is that someone will come and I'll ask her to drink from her water pitcher like as she's getting water from the well and she will offer me the drink that I asked for and then also offer to get water for all of the camels. Can you read 2414 in your copy? The girl to whom I say, tip your pitcher and let me drink, and who replies, drink and let me water your camels too. Let her be the one you have designated for your servant Isaac. That is how I shall know that you have done a kindness for my master. It seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, from both that phrasing and the one in the NRSV, it seems like he's making up a series of events that if it comes true, will be confirmation that this is the new daughter-in-law? Yeah. Is that how you read it too? Yeah, it is. I sort of interpret it as him being like, yeah, this is how I'll know. Like, this is the Mm -hmm. divine sign that I want. I am making a deal. And like, this is how I'll know that you're listening to me. Cool. So, and then even as he's like making this deal in his head, or to God or whatever, Rivka comes up and we get her whole genealogy (laughs) and she comes up, she's gorgeous, she fills up her pitcher, he asks her for some water and the exact scenario that he described comes to pass and he like stares at her and then as soon as she is done giving water to all ten of the camels, (laughs) he offers her some jewelry and gold and then asks her father's name and not hers and asks if he has a place to stay and she says her father's name and says that he can stay at her house yeah so why do you think Rivka is so helpful to this stranger in exactly the way he anticipates does this seem like standard practice or is there something like fairy tale princess about her yeah i don't know I do think that it's interesting that it says she comes up even before he's done praying for it because it (laughs) suggests that it's not like he has had time to approach multiple people and be like, hey, Mm. can I have some water and be rebuffed? Like he has not had time to really put this to the test. Like the first person who comes up (laughs) meets the requirements, which does raise the question of like in this town, 
are they just trained to do that? Like, is this a mm-hmm. standard thing? And would any of them have reacted in exactly the same way? But that seems unlikely because uh, yeah. when I was growing up, I remember being told that like the reason this test was devised is he was asking for a favor from a stranger and lots of people would have of course given him water if he said hey can I have some water but most of them would not have gone out of their way to also bring lots of water for 10 camels because that's a lot of work yeah cool yeah but that isn't an answer to your actual question of why was she so helpful did you have any theories so I'm going to do another Drash Maker, Drash Maker, Drash Me Madrash a segment Great. a little later on. But for now, I don't particularly have a gloss on this situation. Okay. Other than that, she's just nice. Yeah. I do think she's nice. Because we don't get a lot of interiority for the women in Torah, which... Right. I hate. Uh, yes, we will say, like, just in terms of watching how the women are portrayed in this in this story that her introduction reads like this. Yes. <laughs> Rivka, who had been born to Bethuel, son of Milka, wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, was going forth with her pitcher on her shoulder. She was an exceedingly beautiful girl of marriageable age whom no man had yet known. So... Thanks, we needed to know that. <laughs> right, right. That's anyway. relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he gives her a nose ring and two bracelets. Mm-hmm. And she offers... For him to stay the night. Right. And then he thanks God for it and not her. And then uh, she goes home and lets them know. And she specifically runs into her brother first, Laban. And then Laban goes out and uh, welcomes him in. And they give him food to eat. And before he eats, he's like, no, no, no. I, I can't wait. I have to offer marriage immediately. And does that and tells the whole story again like the text repeats the mm-hmm. promise he's made and th- that whole scene and repeats again the scene that happened at the well and then asks so will you send Rivka to be the wife of Isaac and if not like let me know so I can like leave now and go find somebody else <laughs> through the course of this narration it has become pretty increasingly clear that they're like really closely related also although nobody seems bothered by this yeah it just doesn't seem to come up yeah do you have any questions on that part of it oh i do actually have one question so in 24 32 it says so the man came into the house and laban unloaded the camels and gave him straw and fodder for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Oh, yeah. Where did these dudes come from? <laughs> yeah, I. it's starting to feel like a little bit the text is just willing to have extra people added as convenient. Like, remember when <laughs> it, we were talking about Cain and he was like, other people are going to kill me. And we were like, which other people? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're just they just are there in the narrative. I guess the idea is that they must be there to help out with the camels or something or right. with the treasure or whatever. But then it's a really weird thing for Rebecca to do to offer to take care of the camels right? and not of the other people. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Hey yeah. <laughs> That's why this feels so weird. Thanks for, like, pointing that out. Yeah, and also to be like, oh, yes, of course you can stay with us, when it sounds like actually she might be offering shelter to, like, a whole garrison of them. (laughs) 
So that's a little odd. Yeah, thanks, storytellers. So yeah, they're like talking about, I prayed and here she was. Can I take her with me? Uh Uh-huh. The only thing that I'll note is that usually there is this idea that the text doesn't have any extraneous things in it, that Mm -hmm. if it repeats something, it does so for a reason. And we have this really long (laughs) bit full of stuff we've heard before, like very recently. So I know that you're supposed to be asking questions this week, but do you have thoughts about this? Yeah, the thought I have about that is it's just a reinforcement that it happened exactly as he said it would. Mm. Like, we first get his internal monologue where he's talking about like, okay, if this, this, and this happens, then that's the girl and we're good. Then she comes up and this, this, and this happens... So that's the girl and they're good. They go to her house. And then in order to convey to the family that this is why he came here. And in order for us to see that he is being above board and Mm -hmm. open about the fact that not only did he come there for a wife, but it was like for specific divine purposes, I guess. Mm -hmm. He retells the entire story of here was my prediction. Here was the experiment. Yeah. And I think that's why there's so much repetition. Do you have feelings that are different? Um, my only thing is that maybe it's supposed to make her seem extra special in that way of like, we repeat so much of it to emphasize that it's really just because she's super special and important. And we need to like linger on the ways in which she's really important. And also, I think maybe to make it feel less like, who is this random dude that my daughter brought home (laughs) and to establish like that it's not that she wanted to like run away with him or he wanted to run away with her Mm, mm -hmm. yeah there is no canonical evidence for this except for the fact that it starts with like mm, never mind we'll come back to this later (laughs) okay um my next question for you is at the end of 2460 so go on ahead okay great so her brother and dad say i guess god has decided based on your story so we're fine with that we'll go with what god has decided and she can go with you eliezer's happy about that and gives them all gifts and they celebrate and party late into the night and he stays there but then it is interesting because then her dad is like removed from the narrative a little bit (laughs) and her brother and mom are like oh but she should stay a little bit longer with us like maybe a few days like maybe 10 days like they're they're like Maybe she should stay here for a while. Is the implication, and you can go? I don't know. Okay. It seems ambiguously worded of like, maybe mm-hmm. maybe they have second thoughts. They're like, we agreed, <laughs> but now we're not certain. So we'll just put it off and delay. Or also, the mother wasn't mentioned as agreeing the first time, mm. just the brother and dad. And this time, the second time, the brother and mom are like, I don't know, let's delay. So it seems really possible that the dad agreed and the brother was like, okay, I'll side with that. And then the mom was like, what? No. And then the brother was like, okay, I'll side with mom. <laughs> Good. That's my read of it anyway. Uh, we don't get the mom's name, but... Uh, she's a hero (laughs) like in my opinion she like sees that her husband is like yeah our daughter can go off with a stranger and she is like what not yet she can't (laughs) she's like at the very least we can like delay it and maybe he can stick around and i can see him for a little longer before (laughs) we like send her out of here all kinds of weirdos come to the water and hole these days you just (laughs) don't know you never know yeah it's here for jewish moms (laughs) i know she's not technically a jewish mom but 
Anyway. <laughs> but Eliezer is really anxious to hit the road. And this, like, brother and mom duo, who you got to think is mostly, again, the mom, because <laughs> the brother was on the dad's side the other the other time, <laughs> says, well, let's, let's, let's talk to Rivka and see what she says. And they're like, will you go with him? And she says, yeah, I want to go. Or that's not true. She says, I will go. And then, yeah, yeah they send her off uh, again with with him and his newfound men, I guess. And they said with her nurse and oh, yeah. with a blessing. Yeah. And then they leave. What's your question? Drash maker, drash maker, drash me midrash. Mm-hmm. How does Rivka feel about her engagement? Well. And you can start at any point in this narrative. Great. Did you have a thing you wanted to say about this? Because I have lots of thoughts. No, I wanted to hear the very many things that you had to say about this. Okay, I am interested in the version of this in which, this is going to be a shocker, in which Rivka's a lesbian and... (laughs) Okay. Oh. She's of marriageable age, it says. We don't know how old that is, but like, she's being really friendly to strangers. She's really eager to get out of her parents' home. Her father is like kind of eager to send her off without very many questions to the first man who shows interest in her. And her mother is like pretty protective of her and the only one in her corner. Uh But she's like, I don't want to be at home anymore. And (laughs) she leaves and is like, I will figure it out once I'm somewhere else. This is maybe going to be a better option. And also she leaves and the people she takes with her are, it started to say Rebecca off with her nurse. And then it follows it up with Rebecca and her servant girls. (laughs) So my interpretation is, she was being really nice and also she was like maybe looking for a way to leave home yeah with her gal pals yeah i know that there's like power dynamics of like and her servant girls yeah but yeah but that's a really good reading that i totally didn't think of yeah but that is that is my take on the family also because we know from later chapters that like her brother kind of sucks and and you know her dad was willing to give her away like (laughs) <laughs> right away so yeah i'm really happy for her yeah um so i i had the same read as like the mom is caring about her daughter and making sure that this random dude that she's leaving with is a decent person mm-hmm. so i i just interpret the line will you go with this man as uh rivka will you go with this guy uh, do, do you want to go with this guy yeah is that what you want <laughs> Will you? Uh-huh. And then she's just like, yeah, of course. Yeah. I like it. I like that she, like, gets to have some agency there and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. That That's a really good thing, is that she is given agency and she jumps at the chance. Yeah. Yeah. There's also stuff there, right, with the people who go with her who don't have agency, right, about, like, mm-hmm. who gets to have agency. And it's like, the women don't have a lot of agency in this story. Like, her mom isn't even named, but, like... Some of the women get to have, like, a little more agency than the also unnamed, like, servant girls, so. Yeah, speaking of Fuller on the Roof references, Uh this seems like a story that one might tell to illustrate how it is the owners of capital who always get leisure. And we do not regard the leisure of servants as important. Yeah, yeah. I forgot the name of that character. What's his name? It's not Vietka. The communist that you like? Yeah. Perchik. <laughs> Perchik, thank you. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then for our last bit that happens all at once, they go 
back to where Abraham and Isaac are. Isaac is out for like a nightly stroll and he sees them come back and he like does like butterflies in his stomach, heart eyes, the whole deal. And he's like, oh, I love her. (laughs) Then they have this bit of like, and Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and she became his wife and he loved her. And that sort of helped him (laughs) get over the death of his mom. Yeah, that's cool. I think. No, yeah. I don't like that because it's replacing one woman who does emotional support with another woman who does even more emotional support. But Yeah, no, I also <laughs> don't like it in that light. But my, again, not really grounded in text interpretation, um, mm-hmm. I will say is like if she wanted to leave home so that she could just sort of do her own thing. And he's like, listen, we're going to be best friends now. And <laughs> you do emotional stuff and I will do all of the like making sure you always have a place to stay stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's it. I could see a version in which she's like, all right, this seems like a practical arrangement. Yeah. I will accept it as a practical arrangement. I'm so glad. So you said that Yitzhak did a lot of like hard eyes stuff, but what I have is that he doesn't even really have reactions here. It's that Rivka looks up and when she saw Yitzhak, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And I like both the reading of like, oh my God, who is that? He's so cute. I need to like cover up. And the reading of, oh, heck, who's that dude? I need to put my veil on. (laughs) Both have good possible interpretations. Yeah. Yeah. Good versions of who Rivka is. So we were told that there would be an angel sent ahead of Eliezer. And generally, when that happens, a literal messenger of the name shows up in the narrative. Right. We don't see any of that on screen here. Do you have thoughts about that? I don't know. Like, it could be that it's our first sort of metaphorical use of angels. One where we do have precedent for later, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, which I guess would make this one the precedent, but that does, I think, sort of show up later. We have post-cident. <laughs> yeah. But also it could be that that happens off screen, right? Like you're saying, off page, as it were, um, mm-hmm. that somebody does come along and that's why Rivka knows down to the letter, like somebody showed up and said to her, like, hey, you want to go? Like, this is the thing you, that you should do. Exactly. Somebody will show up. He'll ask for drinking water. It'll be a stranger. Uh, you should offer water to his camels. Uh, gotta go. Bye. Good. Oh, yeah. I like the Midrash, which is totally unsupported by the text, that, like, one of her gal pals was like, hey, you're the cutest one of us. You should find just a cool stranger who's coming from a distant land and just water the heck out of his camels and get him to take you away as a wife. And both that this gal pal was in that instance an angel Uh and that it turned out exactly like that. Yeah. And that everybody's a lesbian. And also the men, they ran away together and then she found a convenient husband along the way. Right. That's my favorite part. Great. Okay. The end of the summary is that Abraham actually remarries and has several more kids. Um, <laughs> like who, a lot more kids. Who we never talk about. Yeah. Again, Abraham is old. Like the premise of this whole story of Chaye Sarah is he's like, I have to do this last thing in like my old age. And instead, <laughs> he marries Keturah and she bore to him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. 
<laughs> Which is a lot of kids. Yeah. And also, instead of, like, having them be his kids, he kept doing the Hagar thing and sending them away with, like... I guess in this case, he in gave them case, gifts. Yeah, instead he, of just, like, like, gives them money and sends them on their way. <laughs> I think the implication is you'll be provided for and you'll be fine, but... Mm-hmm. This land is going to be Isaac's land. So you just get money as your inheritance instead. (laughs) And none of those people come back to bury him. So like he, Mm. he dies and Isaac and Ishmael bury him. Yeah. Just a note. There are 12 grandchildren who make 12 tribes of Ishmaelites. And I think that's supposed to mirror the 12 tribes descended from Yitzhak. Oh, Wow. Cool. I didn't notice that. Oh, and then it smash cuts to... Or wait, are these the... No, sorry, I conflated two things. The grandchildren was, like, tracing some ancestry of various Arabian tribes, including Midian, which Mm. I've never read the Bible. Maybe that comes up later. That's that's a joke. I did. (laughs) Yeah. I watched The Prince of Egypt. Listen. (laughs) Good enough. (laughs) Um, And then... The Ishmael thing is, like, the very end of this chapter where they're just unrelated genealogies, like, in case you were worried about never hearing about Ishmael again. Yeah. Like, don't worry, he did get that nation. Yeah. Full of 12 tribes. Yeah. My last comment on the Parsha before we wrap up, uh, and I know I said (laughs) I would try and dig up my old Dvar Torah, and I will try and do that, but I do, just in this bit, want to comment that my recollection, having not looked at that thing in years, is that (laughs) one of the things I talked about was this bit at the end here about how, like, they have a blended and unconventional family, and that's kind of cool, and they have lesser-known members of the family, like, with Keturah and her children, and as far as we can tell, like, those people peacefully like coexisted with Isaac and even at the end there when Sarah is long dead and then Abraham dies and Isaac and Ishmael like come together to bury him and you could imagine a version in which Isaac said like hey I am so sorry for what my mother did like when I was a baby and I didn't know Mm -hmm. but I don't think that was right and uh, you're my brother Hmm. I don't think that that's textually supported I just think it's a possible reading It's not, but I really like that story. Thank you. Yeah. Now we come to the segment, Rating God's Writing, where we rate God's writing on two different scales. Jazz. Yes. How many camel gifts would you rate this Parsha? I would give it... You gave me an open-ended scale. Yeah, this is payback for last time. Uh, okay. episode three? Whatever. Numbering stars. I would give it... Uh, five pounds of silver and two gold bracelets. Okay. Because I, I liked this one. I thought it was pretty good. Nice. There's still, like, slavery stuff happening, and I don't love that. <laughs> yeah. But there are cool women, and they get agency, and there is, like, a yeah. plot happening where somebody goes on a quest, and <laughs> there's a little, like, romance subplot, which I guess is, like, technically plot plot, but it happens mostly off screen. And so I'm kind of into it. Cool. I'm glad. Yeah, out of 127 years that you could live before dying and having a Parsha named after you, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. what, what would you 
give this Parsha? You know, honestly, I think I'm going to give this 127 years. Because, like, this is the first Parsha that's just straight up narratively coherent and doesn't say any atrocious things, as far as I can remember, other than, you know, all of the implications that go along with having servants. But yeah, it's good storytelling. We get back to a character who had been done dirty in a previous Parsha, and he seems to be doing all right. There are blended families. Uh, We invented some lesbians. And yeah, (laughs) this is great. 127 years. That's great. That's Dying peacefully like like in the notebook. Spoilers for the notebook. That's that's such a strong recommendation. I... (laughs) I do I, I do just want to say one thing about your narrative coherency thing, which is that Eliezer does have friends who just pop out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and make that whole story with the Campbells real confusing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like other things where it was like, oh, okay, why are we getting to creation stories? Guess we're going to have to write like... 5,000 doctoral theses about this. Right, right. (laughs) It's just like, okay, we did the thing. I'm repeating it to make sure that we're clear. (laughs) The thing is done. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, my one continuity corner thing, I didn't have anything to look up from last week, but I did have a bit that we refer to in episodes one and two, things about the creation of humans and how animals come in binaries. And Mm -hmm. so the other day, my friend Bryn made a comment on Facebook, and I'm just going to read it because I really liked it. Hmm. Hypothesis. Male and female, God created them, is a mirrorism, not a list. And I was like, okay, but what's a mirrorism? Can you tell me more? And so they explained, anyway, just to de-jargon this before I go make crepes. A mirrorism is a rhetorical device where you list two opposites to express a vaster totality. I looked high and low doesn't mean oh. I exclusively looked in high and low places only. It means I looked everywhere I could think to look. So if you read this as a mirrorism, it goes from meaning God created male humans and female humans, and that's it, to meaning God created humans of every gender. So instead of a dichotomy, it's, yeah, God did all of that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I thought that was cool. cool and a good addition to our discussion about creation. What was that friend's name again? Uh, their name is Bryn. I believe Bryn Solomon. Thank you, Bryn. Yeah. Jess, can you take us to the class? Yeah. Thanks for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash kosherqueers, which will give you bonus content and help us keep making this for you. You can also follow us on Twitter at kosherqueers or like us on Facebook at kosherqueers or email us your questions, comments, and concerns at kosherqueers at gmail.com. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Brivola, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their album. They're great. Our sound production is done by my lovely co-host, Lulav Arnell. I was going to have a thing here, but couldn't figure out one. <laughs> I'm Jazz Tversky, and you can find me at Word Nerd Knitter on Twitter. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Lenape people. I'm Lula Varno, and you can find me at Spacetruck6 on Twitter, or yell at me at Palmliker. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekuta and Anishinaabeg. Have a lovely queer Jewish day!
this week's gender is spiritually impressive. This week's pronouns are fae and fan.